0: Hello and welcome to IndieWire's Very Good Television podcast. I'm Liz Shannon Miller at Liz Lit on the Twitters,
1: and I'm Ben Travers, Ben T. Travers on the Twitters,
0: and Happy Monday as you listen to this. Happy not Friday as we record this, <laughs> uh, but super early, super early, but not too early to talk to you about. Um, a very fun list that we did just this last week and a little something it taught us about the way in which we think about you know television and we'm referring of course specifically to uh, indiewires 50 best TV, best animated TV shows of all time list uh, published as you listened to this last Tuesday hopefully you got a chance over the Thanksgiving break to give it a read. Uh, we worked real hard on it there was there was there's math. There was science used to make this gra- make this thing happen. There
1: were polls, or outside collaborators. Yes. Yeah. You know consultations, there were meetings. It was in depth.
0: Yeah, and I think we came up with a really nice list. I mean, there are, of course, uh, you know, every list makes somebody mad for some other re- some reason or another. But you know, that's the point of doing lists. They're fun.
1: Right. We just just trying to enrage society enough that they're distracted from the things they really should be enraged about.
0: Yeah. yeah. That's a service, right? Yeah, we're definitely not part of the problem. Right. That's uh, what
1: matters. Yeah.
0: So, but this kind of led, it, I'm going to all credit to Ben for this kind of realization because we were part of making the list was talking about, you know, how animation is kind of an overlooked medium in some respects in terms of discussing the quality of TV shows. Now, I mean, IndieWare, We at IndieWare here, we take a lot of animated shows very seriously, as seriously as we take many scripted live action dramas. Um, And that's why, uh, you know, Bojack Horseman made our number one of all time uh, on the the animation list. But it's been our best show of the year at least once and consistently makes an appearance on our top ten lists.
1: Right. Yeah. And it's I mean, I look at these kind of things as I find myself doing more and more often these days through the lens of the Emmys, which uh, is, is probably not the best lens to look at something when you're talking about, you know, the masses. But... Um, in ways, it's it's very reflective, and it always bothered me that the Best Animated Series Emmy was relegated to Creative Arts Weekend. They don't get, you know, until they started televising it recently, they don't get their own kind of time in the spotlight. Very few people know what's won. There's a lot of, you know, repetition in who wins and who's nominated. Um, over the last few years, it's gotten a little more diverse, which has been exciting. But nobody talks like they they talk about kind of the big three now you talk about you know what one best drama series what one best comedy series what one best limited series but nobody talks about I mean nobody talks about docuseries that much nobody talks about that's seen an increase overall people are talking more about docuseries but um they, they, people don't talk about animated shows in the same way that they talk about other programs and um part of it is Everybody's a little sensitive towards, like, animation specifically, like how a show looks can really turn somebody off, even if, like, the content and the writing and everything else is right up their alley. Uh, and that's, you know, an artist's interpretation in a way that isn't quite the same as a director But I, I don't know, I, as we were looking over the list and as we are looking over all these incredible shows, you know, some of which have lasted decades and are still incredibly relevant... Uh, some of which are, you know, very short, but doing some of the most daring stuff on television. Um, It just became increasingly obvious that, like, a lot of these, like our top ten in particular, they're not often discussed in the same realm as, you know, the top ten dramas or the top ten comedies. Like, Uh they don't get that kind of attention paid to them. And um, one of the things that, that brought that to mind was how, uh, and Liz wrote a great article about this for the site already about how, you know, we're seeing these half hour dramas spring up on TV, these live action half hour dramas like Homecoming. Uh, sorry for your loss. What else do we got?
0: Uh, Vita came up in this article. Yeah, which Vita's v- good. I mean, in, like, you know, when you bring in Vita and uh, there was another one. Oh, uh, The Bisexual. Like, a lot of these shows are technically qualified as comedies, not just because of their length, but because they do actively aim for jokes but you know in ge- you know it, there's there has been like this interesting rise of the half hour dramedy um, which i don't think you trace it all the- I think it goes back beyond louie um, which by the way is not oh, a sh- yeah. which is not a show that's aged well but like i, mean, I feel like with louie and girls and a lot of the apatow model like and then carry that over to atlanta like you've- there's been a rise of half hour shows that have been more serious you know, Difficult Peoples made no shortage of amazing jokes about that. Um, but, yeah,
1: like... There's almost like a subsection, though. Like It's almost like a... Um,
0: a subgenre.
1: Yeah, well, like a, like a development process, basically, where you see, you know, we saw how everything was kind of boxed up, you know, before the golden age of TV. And as it began, it was like, you've got your half-hour comedies, you've got your hour-long dramas, they don't bleed into each other. Right. Then, you know, as things kind of progressed, there was a few you know, live action shows that did both. And they got credit where it's like, man, this is a really heartfelt comedy. It's a half hour format, but there's really like intense emotions and you're crying and there's a big deal about that. Um, And then now now we're seeing ones that are not trying to blend genres anymore. They're just straight up dramas or like straight up, you know, the other side, but they're playing with length. So Homecoming is very much a, a, a thriller. It's not trying to be funny. Like there's moments of levity, like there are in just about anything that's, you know trying to have a good time but it's a it's a thriller it's a hitchcockian thriller and it's a half hour long and sorry for your loss is a show about death that is i mean incredibly sad like it's it's not i don't think it's funny at all i know some people have found dark humor within it and i know that that's some of it's intentional but i find it just um an incredibly difficult show to watch and that's also a half hour long so it's like these these trends are all happening and at the same time animation examples of this have been around for eons uh, I mean, just look at Batman the animated series. Like, oh yeah. No one would call that a comedy, and and I mean, a lot of even the live-action Batman was kind of a comedy back in the '60s like, yeah. with the Biffs and the Pows and all the Adam West like. The puns. Adam West
0: Batman was way funnier than the Lo- Batman the animated series.
1: Yeah, and and the movie even Batman Mask of the Phantasm is like a romance, like a very deep, um, you know, <laughs> you know, nostalgic-driven, like you know, digging into Bruce Wayne's childhood um, romance of. of quite a bit of intensity
0: quick sidebar did you see mask of the phantasm in the theater i did oh yeah
1: i did yeah it was it was great i i still think it's it's either the best or the second best batman ever done but um but the point being like and and that show gets a lot of credit for what it was but usually that credit is steered towards batman conversations it's like that's a great batman show right um and it's it's important to note that that was airing you know what saturday morning cartoons
0: yeah, there's uh, Batman, I think, was in after weekday afternoons, but not that there's much difference. Actually, what's really interesting, though, is um, in, in doing that half-hour drama piece and talking to a lot of people about, like, what the half-hour format means for them, a lot of people were saying, like, When you're doing half an hour, that you don't have to worry about plot so much, you don't have to worry about your story engine. You can really focus on characters, Mm -hmm. which is a lovely thing,
1: especially for TV. Yeah.
0: But here's the thing: a lot of these animated shows do strong character work. Like how you like an episode of The Simpsons usually has a pretty strong character arc for at least one of the major characters, and a lot of times it's like a key character relationship and they're also able to do that on top of having pre- a pretty interesting plot line like usually there's like solid, you know <clears throat> like a lot of sitcoms like there will be multiple storylines and you know they get a lot done
1: Yeah, and i mean as as you know the years progressed you saw more and more examples of them i mean you know samurai jack is a great kind of action adventure cartoon series which um you know should get a lot of credit for for you know just the direction of its action sequences and how effective you know those could be done um, the the kind of imagination that fuels a lot of animation doesn't get i mean it's it's almost like a given it's almost like well it's an animated show of course they've got a great imagination they're creating something out of nothing and at the same time that's a lot harder to do you know than than it sounds like it's it's easy to write that off but you know, the kind of things that populate a screen when you can literally decide every inch of it, you know, it matters. And frankly, when you see something that's lesser than some of these great works that's also animated, you're kind of like, okay, I I, I realize I'm not giving enough credit to the ones that really knock it all the way out of the park. Like, it's, it's honestly hard for me to watch a lot of animated movies mm-hmm. and compare them to BoJack, not because of, like, any sort of, you know, thematic resonance or, um, you know, personal... You know connection that you form over time it's just that like the the actual animation is worse like it's it's not as they don't they're not as thoughtful in what they're creating they're not putting as much on screen and and there are different styles obviously like you don't always want to overwhelm your audience and some stuff is made for kids so it's got to be a little simpler a little more condensed mm-hmm. um but i just don't see a lot of you know uh, the same awe-inspiring imagery in some movies these days as I do in a lot of what's going on on TV and and they're forced to do that in one way or another in terms of what they're doing week to week like they're almost challenging themselves but um, I don't know I, I I think animation overall is just kind of not heralded enough it's it's the best picture problem too in movies like oh, yeah. you know, there's plenty of times where it's like Toy Story 3 <laughs> I could have won I don't. I don't. I, There's no good argument against They gave it its own category, so they just wrote it off, and they're like, "Well, it'll take the feature, and we don't need to have it re- have it be a real competitor for picture." But it's like, why are we dividing it up again? Yeah. So.
0: No, I mean, actually, it'll be interesting. Like, I wonder if like something like the Lion King when it comes out next year, the you know hmm. remit. is it next year or the year after? It might be the year after. Um. Anyways, but something like that, like, I wonder if that would be considered a contender because that was the thing, like you know that that was the big kerfuffle over creating the best animated picture category was the fact that uh you know was the fact that uh, you know Beauty and the beast got nominated just flat out best picture that year um and ha- was was groundbreaking in that respect but also legitimately maybe a contender um i don't know uh <clears throat> i mean i feel like on the to to speak of your favorite the emmys uh <laughs> Like, they, they, there have been a lot of instances of, uh, you know, comedy, especially in the comedy writing category, uh, you know, animation sh- submitting for, you know, at least submitting on the writing side, if not submitting entirely as a comedy. I'm trying to think of the examples. Like, did Family Guy submit as just a straight up comedy, of, of, like for the show?
1: Yeah. Family Guy tried to do it. Um, Archer tried to do it for a while. Yeah. Uh, and neither of them were able to break through. Um, and I, I think that's due as much to you know inherent bias towards certain certain genres and certain certain styles as it is toward voters probably thinking well you have your own category like you can just do that and you chose not to so i'm not going to worry about you know bumping out whatever i'd already boxed in uh, as a comedy selection this year but, um, but i don't know it's it's weird like to talk about fighting for these kind of, for like the attention of award shows um, when ultimately they're not as important, but they're just, they're barometers, you know, like they're they're ways to get people thinking about something differently and, you know, at their core, they're designed to draw attention to the best of the best uh, and get exposure for things that maybe wouldn't get it otherwise and kind of putting genres on the same category and making you think about them like that and compare them you know, um, when they're delivering different things, that's, that's important. it's something we're already seeing, you know, to your point, Liz, at the Emmys, when so many, uh, comedies are kind of dramatic and you've got Atlanta going up against Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which is an hour long, and then you've got Barry and then you've got Veep and then you've got, you know, like stuff that's, that's written differently to serve a different purpose and, uh you know, it'd be nice this year at the Oscars to see something like Hereditary competing for Best Picture, and it would be nice this year. I haven't seen Incredibles too, but I've heard good things. It's like, it'd be nice to see, like, people have those discussions about, you know, how successful those are on their own merits but also against each other, to get you thinking about, you know, what deserves to be compared outside of just the best dramas.
0: Yeah, I mean, and, like, you know, like, I feel like a lot of, you know, there's stuff, like, I think Mary, the fact that Mary Poppins Returns is sounding like a legitimate contender this year, at least in certain categories, like, I mean, that's going to be a family movie. Like, when was the last time a movie rated under PG-13 got nominated for an Emmy, uh, for an Oscar?
1: I mean, Babe got nominated for Best Picture. Yeah, that it was, was uh,
0: 22 years ago.
1: Yeah, that's great, though.
0: I know. But I'm saying, like, you know. Hey, Toy Story 3. <clears throat> Toy Story 3, was it Best Picture? hmm It was Best Picture? hmm Oh, I forgot that. Um... But yeah, I mean, I think it's a. I think the, I mean, it's the. I think the stigma regarding animation is really interesting, especially when it comes to you. You talked a little bit about a little bit about aesthetics already, but like, do you feel like if South Park, which is a show where the, I mean, it, to to call it crudely animated is to do is is not accurate, but it is very deliberately animated in the style it's been animated in for decades now. And part of that part of that style is meant to facilitate, you know, speed. Mm-hmm. Um, but for you, like, you know, do you feel like do you it, it, when I said initially, <clears throat> would you would you how would you react to the description of South Park's uh, animation being crude?
1: I mean, it's fine for me. Um, if I was somebody running an awards campaign, I'd be worried about it just because you hear that and you don't mesh those ideas with with you know serious Mm -hmm. fair but again yeah it's 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 looking deeper than that like you mentioned like the reason their their animation style is the way it is is because they're trying to make things as quickly as possible they they're you know turning it around in less than a week most of the time and um, they're trying to do that in order to be as topical and relevant as possible and that's part of the reason they've sustained for so many years Um, so like the idea of dismissing the animation because it's there to serve a greater purpose is kind of silly. Um, but if you only looked at it and were like, "Well, I'm just going to look at the style and see if I like it or see if it compares to kind of the billions of dollars that were spent on this Pixar movie or you know whatever," then you might, you know, try to knock it down a few pegs, and that's that's not really fair.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's weird though, because that means said, like one of the reasons I really like BoJack Horseman being number one on our list is that I feel like animation-wise. It has a very clear aesthetic, has a very clear style, but it's also consistently experimented with it in really exciting ways. Like, um, like there's been collage work and like you know lots of visual like lots of visual choices that elevate it beyond that. And mm-hmm. I will say to like uh, South Park's credit, like when they you know took the time and budget to do bigger, longer, and uncut, there's some actually mm-hmm. really nice animation in that.
1: Well, a lot of the animation in shows that have lasted a while has really progressed in interesting ways because they're either given the money or the time to kind of improve upon it and South Park you know added a, a dimensionality fairly mm-hmm. early on which was a, a big shift and you know they made it work with their style um, without you know losing anything and only kind of uh, gained a little bit of relevance and a little bit of humor in kind of how they were developing out their figures and sets and, and characters um, but yeah I think I think that's you know another big attribute for Bojack is is every element of the presentation is so thoughtfully constructed. The direction is impeccable because it's not just there to kind of point the camera at something that's happening and say go. It's there to deliver jokes and to um, to fill the frame, like as we mentioned, with, with more jokes that you can kind of find on second or third watching, but also, you know, there's reveals, there's cuts, there's, um, there's you know, Episodes that are edited and uh, shot in such a way to evoke a, an uneasy kind of uh, response and reaction from the audience just to kind of knock you off kilter and make you think about things in a in a different way. Like the, the Times Arrow example from two oh, yeah. years ago is is such a great accomplishment in terms of its animation. And, you know, you could look at something like, um, shit, what's the under the water? Yeah. Um, uh, p- Uh, Fish Out of Water. Fish Out of Water episode where, you know, they're constructing a whole new section of the world, and that's, you know, pretty exciting to watch them develop that and to see how they choose to reveal that visually, to, like, reveal uh, without dialogue, you know, how uh, difficult it is for Bojack to have a snack when he gets back to the hotel or how he loses his, um, you know, his booze, which he depends on, or why he can't, you know, get his note to the person in time. Um, All of those are very important, you know, Choices across the board. There's something that was written and planned out, um, you know, from from the piece of paper. But when they're deciding how to visualize it, the way that they do that makes it such an elegant presentation and makes the story so- telling so much more effective and efficient that you just get so much more out of it. And and again, like I, uh, we were talking before the the podcast, our friend and fellow critic Todd Vanderwerf mm-hmm. uh, wrote an article about Wreck It Ralph the sequel, which a lot of people like. I really. Did not like it, but um, you
0: saw you saw Ralph, Ralph breaks the Internet. Yeah,
1: I did. It just it's it's it feels very much like corporate propaganda. Um, <laughs> like the Disney Princesses scene that everybody talks about is great, but it's also there to serve a very deliberate purpose and to get you back on the good side for both the classics and the future of the Disney Princesses. But this is a whole other discussion. Right. Uh, what Todd wrote about was how kind of the storyboarding process, which is a requisite for a lot of animated projects benefits the screenplay as well and um, I I encourage everybody to dig into this on their own and and explore kind of how this got done but just the idea of how much time you have to spend thinking about how to best visually construct a frame um, and then how that applies to what you've already written and how you can then rewrite to fit you know whatever ideas you have or whatever problems you come into you know that alone should illustrate just how much of an of an edge, animation can often have in just telling great stories.
0: Yeah, I mean, t- uh, I mean that sounds. I I, I I need to read this article as well. Um, but the thing that it evokes is the memories of people talking about the early days, especially the early days of Pixar, where every storyboard, like every, they they did ruthless, mm-hmm. constant story meetings where they were constantly revising. Uh, sections of the story, and it was all very visually driven. Uh, like they would have the storyboards, but it was all like story oriented. Like it wasn't just like about the visuals; it was about like what what is this chunk of the story doing for us? Mm-hmm. And it, they did it. It was yeah. It was very, It was apparently very very elaborate and very very intense.
1: Yeah, and I think I think one of the things you don't always think about, especially at least I don't always think about, one because I'm so geared toward how something's written, um, is you know what kind of benefits everybody else can bring to it and how you might want to adjust to incorporate those ideas. Like you might have written this great scene that's got this great uh, back-and-forth dialogue that just is rat-a-tat-tat and you love it, but then somebody comes up with an idea for you know the setting and you have to figure out a way to show off that setting without losing the efficiency of the scene. And you may have to rewrite the entire thing um, because one idea is better than the other or it's just as valuable as the other, so you have to figure out a way to incorporate it. Uh, incorporate that and again, animation just seems to do that so very well and, and again, you know maybe they have because they can draw it and they can you know imagine it and put it on the paper as opposed to imagine it and either you know have a bajillion dollars to create it in a computer or um, go out there and spend ages trying to find the location that they've you know thought of uh, maybe there's a bit of an edge in that but again, like it, it comes down to just, the overall impact of what we're talking about here, of what, of what these stories can do, and um, yeah, animation just does it really well.
0: Yeah, I mean, we were talking, we were, uh, we didn't do enough brainstorming on this, but like, there are a couple, there are definitely like, people who have come from animation and moved into live action who bring with them a really strong sense of story that you know you see carried through in their work and like Phil Lord Phil Lord and Chris Miller are a great example of this their their very first project was a little show called Clone High uh, which if you can find it if you can track Clone High down make it, make it a watch it's 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 really delightful um, you know Brad Bird is another classic mm-hmm. example but even though he's gone back to animation on the TV side it, it maybe doesn't happen as much but you know there's plenty of examples you can probably track down of people who moved back and forth
1: yeah, no, absolutely. And it's it's kind of this this idea of of how we talk about the creators and how we talk about the value of animation compared to other genres out there. That doubles for the creatives themselves because you know, maybe they started an animation and they just got stuck there because it's hard for, you know, Hollywood executives or producers or other people to just see outside of the box that they've already succeeded in. And it's like, no, 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 that guy's a great storyteller. You can let them tell stories however they want and they can, you know, they'll be better for it because they understand, you know, the basics of of all of, of this, of the entire process. And, you know, that's not to say they're the same thing, but it is it is important to kind of recognize what people's talents are without limiting them to one thing or another. Yeah. You know, Brad Bird, great example of it.
0: Yeah, no. Nobody I mean,
1: thought he could do Mission Impossible like that and yet there you go.
0: Yeah. I mean, there there are counter examples. Poor Andrew Stanton who, by the way, has switched from, uh you know, he Andrew Stanton went from directing some of uh, like Finding Nemo to directing John Carter which was a very famous flop for Disney and uh, he recently directed an episode of Better Call Saul. So mm, I remember fig- that. Yeah, yeah, figuring out. So I mean, TV, TV is as always is a great uh, you know place to figure things out story wise. Right, and we get great stories as a result. Winners all. Winners all of us, especially on the animated side, because TV is good. I mean, there's too much of it, and you guys should all stop making it so that we can you know catch up. But you know, TV is good.
1: TV is good.
0: Speaking of which Ben, what was the best thing you watched last week?
1: um it's been a a sparse couple of weeks Liz um I honestly don't I don't know what the best thing was it might be Widows but I watched that a while ago I just kind of revisited it right that's a movie
0: and that is also a movie yes
1: um I mean this is us has been okay
0: that's good good place has been good
1: it's been okay yeah, I don't know. I'm gonna go with Widows. Everybody go see it. Not enough people watch Widows. Didn't yeah. make enough money. It's great.
0: <laughs> I'm very excited about seeing it.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's worth it. It's it's impeccably shot. Uh, wouldn't surprise me if you used storyboards. Uh, but Liz, what's the best thing you watched last week? Preferably something on television.
0: Um. Well. Oh, I'm not gonna talk about Entourage. Oh okay. God. I'm not. Good me not talking about entourage kind of um i'm gonna mention uh if you didn't catch it over thanksgiving weekend uh because you didn't listen to our thanksgiving episode and you were like "Ah, i don't need to i don't need to i don't need a marathon tv on thanksgiving i'll talk to my family or something silly like that to six. um i'm gonna say if you're a mystery science theater 3000 fan from the old days that the new days are just as good just as charming um and uh You know this latest season, which premiered on Thanksgiving Day, um, is six episodes. It's you know, and the whole the whole the whole story is uh, the 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 mads are challenging uh, Jonah and the robots to binge also binge, Mm -hmm. so it's like they're they're binging like all all six movies in a row, which is kind of a unique a twist for the format because it was always kind of just. You know, every week, every episode was basically, like, oh, another week has passed or something. Uh, but this is all one more centered story, and it's a lot of fun. And uh, the first movie is Mac and Me, uh, which is oh, incredible for any fan of uh, Paul Rudd's appearances on Conan O'Brien. Um, <laughs> I will tell you right now, Paul Rudd does not come up in the episode, but it's tr- it's quite charming. Um, anyway, so Mr. Science Theater Three Thousand. Um, remains as always a childhood favorite for children of all ages then yeah. what's the next thing you're looking forward to
1: um i think i'm looking forward to uh, the bob's burgers thanksgiving episode Ooh. do i know that that's coming is that a first year thing probably i know they they do a lot of them and they're always exquisite and virtually anytime bob talks to the food uh, let alone you know takes drug and drug-fueled trips with them um it's, it's just outstanding TV. It's just really, really exciting. Um, and I haven't had a chance. I think I'm about two or three behind on Bob's, which is one I, I typically keep up with pretty well. So I'd, I'd say I'm looking forward to catching up with that, especially uh, if there is a Thanksgiving episode on the horizon.
0: Well, I'm looking at the – I just Googled uh, the, the you know episode guide, and apparently the episode that aired um, on November 18th uh, and is called Bob, I Bob your pardon.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: and the episode description is the Belcher set out to save a turkey from a trip to the slaughterhouse. great. yeah, love so I it. feel like I'm gonna I'm gonna stop it there so it's already
1: aired, but I'm looking forward to it because I haven't watched it yet.
0: yeah, and it's gonna be about Thanksgiving. <laughs> yeah, probably. It's
1: gonna be like two weeks old by the time this episode comes out but We're you know doing what? great there's no bad time to watch Bob's Burgers, yeah. you guys. It's fantastic. Uh, I love it. All right, Liz. um again, i'm I'm letting everybody down. do you have what's what are you looking forward to next?
0: I mean, as you as you listen to this, uh, I think we're going to be like, it's going to be like two weeks out before people get to watch it. And I think we'll be a couple of days, it'll also be a couple of days before the embargo, if I'm not mistaken. But I am looking forward to diving back into the world of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Um, I've been rewatching the first season uh, as kind of a bedtime story lately. And it is, you know, I, I feel like I, I really enjoyed that first season. I really, I really felt like it was a really nice portrait of the time period. It was a really nice portrait of like someone someone like kind of discovering this new this new ability of hers and like really learning to grow as a creative person. I feel like the characters are really sharp. I mean, it's it's very much like you have to be able to buy into it. Like you have to be able to if you have to be able to engage with Amy Sherman-Palladino's very specific tone. But I don't think I think that's a not a hard a hard sell for a lot of people, and I think uh, you know Emmy Emmy voters and civilians alike.
1: Yeah, it's it's she's a good fit for that type period. Um, a lot of the the kind of period details and um, language that they use works well when you're kind of flying through stuff and and you know being a little charming, being a little scat dash. It's yeah. fun. Um, yeah, good pick. That was, I mean. That was as good of a season of television as they could make. Uh, that would keep me from being too upset when Atlanta lost Best Comedy Series. Mm. Like, I wasn't you couldn't happy, you couldn't like
0: set you didn't feel the obligated to set anything on fire.
1: Right? It's not like one of those things where they actually let something bad win or they great. let something mediocre win. It was like, no, that was great. That was that was great. Yeah, and I so,
0: and I don't even feel like it's category fraud. Like, it's a comedy.
1: Yeah, no, it's a comedy. I'm fine. Yeah, I don't have any problem with that yep. um i just yeah wish atlanta would get it to do at some point
0: someday better
1: <laughs> not next year that's probably the,
0: yeah but you'll be able to read all about all these shows and more on indiewire.com where you will also find news reviews interviews features all the stuff you like
1: and if you want to listen to podcasts that don't incessantly talk about the emmys in november <laughs> um <laughs> Make sure you listen to the Turn It On podcast with our own Michael Schneider, a very special episode coming up with Max Greenfield, who talks about a very special series called The Leftovers. Jar. Um, There's also the one that started it all with uh, Eric Cohen and Ann Thompson. It's called Screen Talk. And uh, finally, last and literally the opposite of least, uh, the Filmmaker Toolkit podcast from the world's greatest human being, Chris O'Fault, is also at your fingertips whenever you know, you get a, get off your ass and actually listen to great podcasts. Uh, and I know for a fact that his most recent one at time of taping uh, was with Steve McQueen of oh. Widow's fame. So listen up, folks, to, well, one perfect human being and one Academy Award winner.
0: Yeah. Pretty good. Uh, you can committed. find Ben on Twitter at Ben T. Travers.
1: You can find Liz on Twitter at Lizlet. That's with an I and then an E.
0: Thank you. Remember that we are back on iTunes, so you can rate, review us, or subscribe. Or if, especially if you want to say nice, happy things about us. Um, thank you so much for listening. Uh, we will be back next week, and as always, please keep watching television.
1: You don't have to make anymore, but you can watch it.
0: Yes.